Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Christina Dresha, futurist, archetypal consultant and author. Over the past 17 years, Christina has found herself based between Australia, Europe, America and Asia. Christina travels the world, gaining insight into emerging social, cultural, and consumer trends to create new corporate strategies, products, services, and experiences, working with many of our leading world brands and influencers. In today's interview, we hear about the importance of following the seasons and the rhythm of nature. We talk about the need to understand and respect mythology in understanding ourselves, our businesses, and the world around us. We discuss going with the flow of the rivers we travel and the waves we all surf and how leaders often wish for simple solutions to fundamentally broken cultures. We discuss life, death, the world, and wider universe. On today's show, we are also joined by Lucinda Roberts, the Dean of Awesome with the Awesome Foundation, a global network of zero-strings-attached micro-grants. Lucinda joins us with Alice to discuss awesome life, the world, and the exciting future. Stay tuned for more. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thanks for joining me, Christina. Uh, I'm going to start way, way back. Mm-hmm. What were you like when you were 10? Gosh, what was I like? Um, very similar, I think. Part of it in the sense of being a bit of an outsider, not completely kind of fitting in. Um, having, I guess, my really, already at that age, really clear views on certain things. Um, and yeah, always, I think I had an inquisitiveness then still that's really, really served me with my work. Yeah. Did that inquisitiveness come from your parents or just... Quite randomly. Yeah, I think, um, so both my parents are Lithuanian. Um, and as when I grew up, um, Lithuania was under communist rule. So it was so important, and my, my parents were born in the displaced people's camps in Germany, um, to keep that link to the, to the homeland, to the motherland. So I, um, every Saturday, went to a Lithuanian school. And I really struggled because, um, like in Australia, you get popular by playing sport. Um, but on Saturday I had to go learn Lithuanian grammar and wear a traditional folk costume and had a crown and, and, um, you know, do scouts and singing and all of that. Um, so I think always having that another realm or another world that I was part of really kind of, um, sat with me in the sense of why is this important to someone or why does this culture do this or you know, what's the ritual around that? So, yeah, it definitely comes from my parents. So so back even at that age, just mm. what you were explaining of almost analysing the cultural differences being seeing yourself and your friends or was it? Yeah, yeah. because it was so painful in one sense, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, 
God, almost like the joy of being different or yeah but i honestly think like when i grew up um it wasn't that cool to be multicultural yeah. like it is now. You know, I had a funny name. Um, we ate different food. Uh, we spoke a different language. Um, it was still quite, Australia was still quite monoculture then. It wasn't like it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think always within that, I had that sense of being different. Um, but I also found it just got me more in touch with being able to sense what was going on around me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And mm. do you, did you ask is that, are that sort of age to your parents of I don't know, what it means to be different or like, like what the, how, how does that kind yeah, of conversation um, go on with your parents? Or you just you obviously need to just accept because that's just the reality of, of who you are. I didn't fit in in high school at all. Like mm. I really, really struggled because I don't have a maths one, phys two, chem brain. Like those subjects, that's not how my brain operates. Mm. And um, I remember actually in a, um, a physics exam I got – one out of 29, I got half a mark for getting my name right and the other half a mark for getting the date right. <laughs> and um, and really struggled. I don't... Uh, my brother has a PhD in laser spectroscopy and is a mathematical genius. So it's quite funny how myself being more intuition, emotion, arts-led and him being science kind of rational kind of led. Um, but my brain doesn't work in that, that there's only one fixed answer. Um And I think it's like a lot of people, um, it's sometimes, it's not that you're too ahead of your time, but you're just in a different time zone to where everyone kind of else is. Mm. And I was always sensing, again, back to that word of sensing and feeling, I was... um, I was not doing what the other kids were doing and I wasn't satisfied with just what the other kids were doing. Yeah, that's good. So did you know what you wanted to do when you grow up? I think I wrote, I either wanted to be in my, at high school we had to do it, um, I either wanted to be a socialite or a psychiatric nurse. (laughs) And they called in my parents. I don't think that was the answer they were expecting. Um, And maybe that's somehow a little bit what my life has actually become. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Inquiring into the minds of people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you then, and then, and you now, Mm. what, what are sort of the steps that have got you to where you are now? What are some of the creative groups that say, I don't know, a few, three, yeah. couple? Yeah. What are the kind of Probably key, one you... of the biggest things was um, studying uh, Aboriginal cosmology at the university here at Adelaide, uh, just a subject of it, um, to see constellations of biggest, and I don't just mean star systems, but how life constellates um, was one part of it. And... And then I'd also probably say the foray into the world of trends really kind of made were specific kind of steps that kind of... Um, did that come after university? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I didn't do trends. I wasn't. I, I did anthropology at university, so I was always obviously interested in, in society and, and um, you know, why this culture does this or what's, what are the meanings and the rituals in a Balinese cockfight or, you know, having a look at, um, you know, just, you know, people eating and just being able to understand what the kinship structures are things like that i always loved yeah so you finished uni and what did you do once you finished yeah uni? i finished uni and I'm, I'm an adelaide born and bred i know my accent doesn't sound like <laughs> it um but i was away for 17 years so i after university i went overseas so um London for seven, then New York, Tokyo for a couple, um, and then Hawaii too. So most of my predominant working career has been overseas. Not, Did you not, look for a certain yeah. type of job? 
at the time when you finished uni? I... Or was it just going and travelling or was it looking for a certain role or occupation? Yeah, I won the um, inaugural... It was sponsored by Shell at the time, the Live Wire Award, so their Young Entrepreneur Programme. And um, with a friend at the time set up, you know, it was the beginning of like the web and things like that. So like a real simple, simple web design business and so won that award. Um, And so that, I guess, started as an entrepreneur, you know, at um, 17, 18 years of age. Mm. Um, And... And then I moved to just Sydney to kind of briefly for an advertising agency. But again, it was, um, I was so interested in, in, it's what's more like happening now, which is more collective leadership. I'm not a person that, I'm not a fan of the hierarchy. I know in certain places it serves its purpose, you know, in an army and things Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. But I really couldn't cope in in that hierarchical kind of network. And that actually it's so important to have knowledge of life beyond simply just one's job. It's to inquire of how the world works. And I just remember I used to, um, and I was very young. So I was 16 when I started uni. um, And so, um, you know, in in my early 20s at this ad agency. And I was sending like people do now, like round robin emails of, hey, did you see this? Or what do you think about that? And let's, and that was just too much, you know, 20 something years ago, because it's like, no, you're just here to do your job. It's not actually to get everyone on a different, you know, in a way, in a new ideological or thinking paradigm. So there was a a process of doing what you do in an organization like that, that you felt a bit uncomfortable with. Yeah, I'm right? not good with rules and structures. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm probably the same in, in many ways, which is funny being I'm a, a researcher. Bit of a rule breaker. It's, a... it's like it's like if it's supposed to be that way I and and, and I, I I abhor instructions. <laughs> or actually basically I just don't know how to follow them. That's interesting. And um I used to love cooking and uh, and people would always ask for my recipes and they were all just made up on the spot. Like I'm not mm. one of those people that's very methodical. Yeah. That that's interesting. So you went to London yeah. next after Sydney. So what, yeah. what did you do in London? Yeah, in London for three years at um, a brand agency. It was called Rufus Leonard. It was a spin-off of Wolf Olin's. It was one of the most successful ones over there. And that, I guess, I was a strategist there. So really learning the game. Um, but this is also in the dot-com kind of boom. And, I mean, just the the money and the excess. and the. But it's like people didn't see anything... They didn't see the writing on the wall. It's a bit like the same with the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, all those films like um, Too Big to Fail and, and that there are certain people that can see the patterns of what was kind of coming yeah. up. Did you see it? Did you see it coming I in s- hindsight? No, no I, I was too too young. Uh, I definitely saw the 2008 one yeah. kind of coming, um, but not um, not the first dot-com one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from there to... Your your role now, trends and forecasting and yeah, I um, so what happened was in London um, I was part of the strategy team and then obviously the dot com crash kind of came and you know strategists one minute you're highly valued the next you're out on the street uh, you know Um, and that was then I just really kind of realised that wasn't my lane and I saw and I'd already started at um, Central Saint Martin's doing evening courses Um, you know one was actually in fashion journalism some styling um but then there was one 
that was actually on um, color forecasting, color and textile forecasting. Um, And I just, then that really linked with the anthropology that I did at university. And I thought, ah, and it was, this is now we're talking about the early 2000s. So I've been in the trends game for quite a while. Um, And it's, it's funny to see there was still some of us there that, in the still the career that we are in now today, when we started back then, um, we came to it almost from the sense of not the way that people are doing now, like, oh, it's a really trendy career and I want to get into it. It was just so natural of who we were that our businesses built up mm. around us. Was it being fascinated? Was it, I just want to sound a little bit like there was a, it was building a bridge between your study in anthropology then going oh Mm. this is a thing i could apply that to that yeah and to see that there was kind of the there was kind of value in Mm. it um and then i was um really lucky my you know first official trends job was um for the son of um lord howe lord howe was um, margaret thatcher's deputy prime minister and so um the projects and the consortiums that we were working with was like british telecom and microsoft and number 10 and um You know, I became head of consumer trends and being flown around the world with introductory letters from um, from British Parliament. So (laughs) got to meet and interview some really amazing people. Um, That model of trends doesn't exist now. So what we would do would get, um, you know, amazingly genius people all around the world, uh, speak with them like we are now and, and obviously be able to formulate through speaking to a variety of people so whether it's science or technology or culture and I think it's so important in, in that to say you've got to speak with architects because their future might only come to fruition in five ten years depending on planning times as much as a chef um, because they can actually put their creation on a plate in 20 minutes mm. um, as much as the person on the street that can't articulate the future that's coming mm. and I was just able to kind of like weave between all of those um a really good sense of um, what was coming up next. Mm. So it's almost that it's, it's that it, it's almost I almost that you as a child of, of, of waiting for the time to catch up. Mm. The, the, you talk about architects might have a vision for the future, yeah, but then the time catches up to that vision. It's because yeah. one of the other interviews we had, um, I think it might have been Stuart talking about the time time catching up to what's in, in your head almost yeah, people, the, the, yeah so that, that, that well for me i always kind of say there's nothing more important in business than timing yeah that's right you know it's a timing, timing and place and mm-hmm. yeah there we go that's interesting, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. so so some of the the brands you've worked with or what are, the, what are the brands you've worked with over time that you've most enjoyed yeah i was sent to tokyo to help um concept designer first class um airport lounge for ana um, i love all the travel brands i think because travel is part of my dna so i i love that world of of the explorer um a lot of my clients actually can't talk about as you would know like it's very heavily Mm. nda um and and yes often i don't even get told sometimes if i work for um a consultancy they won't actually even reveal who i'm doing the trends work for themselves um but yeah i just did a really interesting project about um what the future olfactory experience will be. So what's the future of smell um, for one of the large um, uh, fragrance houses? So that was quite interesting. Yeah, okay. that's great. When, oh, I'll start off quite broadly, but mm. what do you see as a or one of the 
key trends that are coming through? Obviously, you sort of deal with so many trends, but yeah. what, what do you see as one that you sort of look at and you, you quite like? What do I quite like? Um, like? Well, I mean, the media call me a futurist. I'm known as a futurist. I don't see myself do it. That's not mm. the way I describe yeah. myself and my work. Um, I see myself more as an archetypal consultant. Um, and actually, I just gave a talk here in Adelaide last night about a, a Greek myth and, and its meaning in society and, and why myth matters. Um, and and in that myth, it's really that death-rebirth cycle. And I guess a trend that I can link that to is, you know, we can't always be in a growth mindset. And... Um, and again, my first book I, I wrote about um, seasonal, tidal, lunar, and circadian rhythms. So nature's kind of nature's rhythms are incredibly mm. dear to me and to my work. Um, but I'm really fascinated about how in society we can say death, decay, putrefaction, fallow fields that all of them actually have a place in society. Mm. Um, and, and that's what I'm really interested in. So things like the circular economy and um, where, yeah, it's just this, this fallacy of constant exponential growth because it just goes um, in complete direct opposition to what the truth of nature shows mm. us. Can, can you explore that a bit further? And I think mm. it's an interesting topic that, has come up in some of the discussions I've had of late, just about growth is not essential, whether it's a, in a business mindset, but also mm. in a in a, a general consumer, yeah, community, yeah, yeah. citizen perspective. But there seems to be so much pressure to grow, and that and guess what we see? There's almost mm. almost see these conflicting two um, two forces at play. One, there's never been more opportunity to do things, but our anxiety levels are growing. Is that does that kind of fit into that? Yeah, that kind of almost obsession with growth is actually causing us more harm than good. Absolutely. And I think also if we don't have an understanding of myths and their function in society, it's a difference between me on my own, you know, going on a long, arduous journey as compared to Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey also on a long, arduous kind of journey. I think that when you don't have that psychological cradle that myth kind of gives you, I think, yes, definitely we become much more anxious. Um but I also think that um, when we're so focused on surface living, uh, so the talk that I gave last night was around the myth of the Greek myth of Demeter, Persephone and Hades about the necessary um, archetypal need to descend and go into the underworld. Mm. And the response is phenomenal. And I'll be giving the same talk again in Sydney next week. Um, and I, I'm just finding the response is where we are in society at the moment in we can't always be happy, happy, shiny, shiny uh, continuously. We can't mm -hmm. always be in the solar. We can't always be. And I, I think that's, and that whole, we can't almost be this mythic, heroic version of ourselves. Mm. And I guess what I kind of see is that what I've learned through, you know, futurism, if we can say it, call it that, um, that people always see the future as at a time other than now, right? So they're always like projecting out into, as I said, often this, this mythic heroic version of themselves, which then almost is a, um, a continual, almost a disconnect from the truth of what's actually kind of occurring. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost like rooting people in reality mm. in the now rather than being obsessed with that future, yeah. better self 
better, better, best. And it's like, I love Oprah, but I'm not a fan of that, like, live your, live your best life because it's almost motto because it's saying that the life that you're living now is not good enough. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, and then it gets into that very comparativeness. Um, and I think it always then gets often linked with worth. I think productivity is also linked with worth. Mm. When you just have, you have worth inherently just because you breathe. Um, but I think it's very much, you know, and again, when we're in the underworld or when we're not in a growth mindset, we almost don't have any um, bargaining power in the sense of anything that's um, got currency or tradable because it's such a um, almost an internal kind of process. Um, and I think that is one part why, um, you know, nature's rhythms are a, a, a crucial I guess if we want to say um, future success model for businesses and society at large. Mm. What else can we learn from nature? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't even know. Where, where your, to begin? Your first book covered nature. Yeah, um, seasonal, tidal, lunar and circadian rhythms. Yeah. And what I just learned through my career was I moved away from trends quite quickly into rhythms and patterns. Um because that's really what you're doing. You're just, you, you, you become a pattern recognition mm-hmm. expert. That's what you're doing. Um, and then now my work is more on archetypal patterns and mythic patterns in the collective unconscious is the, the my, my specialism now. Um, but what nature is, is showing us is almost the, the, the truth of living. It's like, um, you can't, if we look at the moon, it, it doesn't go from, you know, new to full overnight. There's phasing and waxing and waning. And it um, teaches us almost in the sense that it's this this myth of um, I'll go to bed a flawed human being and in the morning I'll wake up a divine spark or everything comes at Amazon Prime download speed. You know, um, we just, I think, more get in sync with that there's a, as Ecclesiastes uh, says, uh, you know, it's the, there's a time and season for everything under the sun. So nature to me is really our greater teacher on timing and that we do need the winters of our lives, winters of despair. They're incredibly kind of necessary um, as much as um, obviously the potential of spring. Mm. And you talked uh, in our um, discussion before we started the podcast about your surfing Mm. Uh, does that kind of fit? I was kind of thinking about almost like I, I was having a, 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 a chat to um, probably one of our children sort of about life's very much about waves. You've got to go with the waves and, yeah. and don't fight the waves. Absolutely. And, and like, is, is that kind of very sort of similar about life? Don't try to f- go against the stream, go with the stream and go with the flow. Yeah, and definitely. Like accepting life as it is, not how we wish it to be. Yeah. And so I often am working with clients that, wish it was pre-2008 that that money is around Mm, it's not going to be like that actually anymore that we're in a new normal and and yes like I said like in my surfing accident and breaking my leg um you can't you have to be someone different in the process you Mm. can't go back to who you were before that person doesn't actually exist Mm -hmm. and I think that's an area that you know I've been really you know fascinated by in regards to I did go to a, a um a lecture last week, though, in Sydney about um, sacred leadership, about how we're moving from leadership to eldership. And the talk was given by an Aboriginal elder. And there is that aspect also of um, the richness of of rituals and also in the sense that, you know, um, you, you, 
when we're kind of going through change or kind of transformation, if you just kind of think of it like the caterpillar to the butterfly, when you actually are the butterfly, like the caterpillar can't come with. So the questions you're asking as a caterpillar don't exist as a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And I think that's what surfing and all those things are kind of almost consistently kind of teaching you is, okay, who do I need to be for this moment in mm. this wave? Not that I mean that you're, a, you're always changing your personality or anything like that, but it's like, I know when I do public speaking, um, it's you just always have to say, like, what does the room need? You read the energy of the room. What I speak to the room, to the zeitgeist that's there. And that often means that the talk that I've prepared is not the one that I actually give. Yeah, you know, and it's the same thing of like, you don't go surfing because today I wanted to go surfing. You sit on the sand dunes and you read the waves. You just see what's coming up. And I think it's the mm-hmm. teaches you to see beyond the horizon, mm. to see what hasn't quite formed yet. You can see waves that they haven't, you, you can see it them forming, but they're not yet crashing on yeah. the shore. And nothing you can do can change that. That's just the reality of. Though I did in is. my mind kind of go, I should have been able to predict which wave broke my <laughs> leg, um, but that just caused a lot of suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just. The, you mentioned death earlier. Do you, mm. building on the conversation we've just had, the idea of birth, life, and death? Mm. Do you think we under? Oh, we did some work last year about for a cemetery, and it was quite fascinating. Just once we step over that bumper, we're talking about funerals and cemeteries. People are quite mm. okay talking about it, but it's this big shock horror about talking about death in society. Mm. Even we had discussions with even people who were in their 80s and, and, and beyond who were still very, very awkward about that whole conversation around death. Mm. What, what's your sort of perspective? Yeah, obviously, because, um, as I said, it's just been so recent and actually this is um, this myth of, of Demeter and Persephone and Hades is what my new book is about, about in archetypal psychology, depth psychology. Um, and Hades, for those that don't uh, know that are listening, it's he's the god of the underworld. Um, he's death himself. He's hell. And um, and it's this uh, Persephone as a young maiden is, is kidnapped by him. So she's also the daughter of Demeter, the goddess of the grain. So she is both life's daughter and death's bride. And so I talk a lot about, uh, you know, how how the underworld and the upper world are married together. Um, because obviously that is the Greek myth where we got the, the seasons from. Um, but actually that we, we, the seed is planted when it's darkest, do you know? Um, and that there's great, mm. there's always great growth that happens in the dark. It's invisible that we don't actually kind of see. It's not always, um, you know, what, what's easily seen with the, with the eye, with the naked eye. It's what's in the invisible eye. It's like, um, you know, some indigenous cultures say that, you know, or for us in the Western culture, we say a woman's pregnant for nine months because we can see a very visible gestation. But they would say that the, the, the gestation period of the child in their indigenous cultures began when the baby was just an idea in the mother and the father's mind. Mm. That could have been 20 yeah. years, 10 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, so there's so much growth that happens in the dark that we don't see. That's great. Yeah. Cultural differences, mm. different places around the world or indigenous cultures. Mm. What, what do you sort of see as the, yeah. the, uh, uh, the myths and seasons are connected to all or do different cultures? Yeah, like in a way, like we're all ancient Greeks or ancient Egyptians or ancient Hebrews because the images, images in those myths are speaking to our collective psyche. Um, and, and again, in, in underworld kind of language, 
it's um, images and poems and um, visions. It, it's not left brain linear world, and it's really being able to how do we how do we kind of have this dialogue you know with that metaphoric mythical kind of part of ourselves and that's why i think yeah it's amazing to study the myths that exist all around the world mm. um to see the similarities obviously as joseph campbell wrote in his work about the monomyth that 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 exists there um but part of it also is i mean a really good example would be um you know the inanna myth with inanna and her sister arishkagel of how to to weave um compassion and cruelty together as much as the light and kind of the dark mm. and a bit like we were saying earlier with the surfing it's the the continual ebb and flow of life um and again that's what these myths actually remind us of but when we're in the corporate world often it's it's it can feel very static and very permanent you know that rhythmical kind of quality has often been lost mm. uh, there's some cultures that you deal with or observe that are more accepting of myths and mm. uh, seasons yeah. than what we might be in the Western world. I'm assuming yeah. cultures where, like a lot of some of the work we do, we sort of, it, people almost have a fear sometimes of religion. So I'm assuming if mm. you have a fear of religion, potentially you've got a, a, mm. a more sceptical side around myths and seasons. Yeah. Or is I guess the way that I work is, and again, if I use the word gods or you know, I really like James Hillman's work on polytheistic um, psychology. Um, that actually, they're actually styles of consciousness, mm. do you know? Um, and most of us have kind of lost that metaphoric lens. And I'm really interested in how do we get our mythos glasses back on, not our logos glasses. And yeah. yes, I lived in, in, in Japan for a couple of years and we could say, oh, that's a culture that's very heavily influenced by the seasons. But that can often be very um, only externally related. So, okay, it's Sakura cherry blossom season. So we'll, we'll bring out, you know, at Starbucks, the, um, oh gosh, I don't know. Yeah, the Sakura flavored um, macaron and um, Verve Clicquot will bring out particular bottles in the pink and things like that. I'm actually more interested in the seasons on a metaphoric level about what are the changes that are occurring within yourself that can sometimes obviously run parallel to what the external season might be doing. Hmm. Yeah. Is it a, a bigger message about how cultures who don't necessarily understand or might be immediately um, fearful of the idea of accepting myths and um, seasons in their life mm. to just accept them more as a way of managing their lives better. Mm. Again, it's like better. What does that word actually mean, better, best? I think we're always where, where, where we're meant to be. Yeah. And I think there's a point in time where someone will just align with a truth that makes sense for their lives. Mm. And I think that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, not. A, I think some people in life are just late bloomers, and that's actually okay, you know, rather than trying to intellectualize our children too young. So is it about accepting that? Is it yes, about accepting? Is it, is it, is it, does it all come back to that acceptance, that resilience? Mm. That I'd even say like the word acceptance is, uh, we can say like, let go, surrender, accept, whatever the word we want to put into the mix. They're just words. The actual embodiment and the being of that, that's, that's lifetimes. Of, mm. <laughs> um, and 
And yes, actually, it's it's being able to be in a moment and know that nothing is missing from it. Um, and often it's like we want to, well, even if it was, you know, I said, like I said, with um, when I did my accident in, in my, my surfing, it was during a surfing lesson. And I actually just, I changed the day of the lesson. And I was like, if I only didn't go, if I stuck with the original day, I wouldn't have broke my leg. And we can sometimes kind of get like that, um, thinking we have that much control. And that's why I wrote the book firstly about nature was because I work a lot with boards and CEOs where they actually believe they are the ones bringing the sun up and down each day. Um, they believe that barking orders at their PA is what gets the moon to affect the tides. Um, there's greater planetary rhythms occurring that have an influence on us. So when, when you're dealing with boards and CEOs, mm. are they um, taking your wisdom on board um, because there's a problem or because they're looking I think what's happened is doing what for someone doing. like me that's on very much on the fringes with my work especially around archetypes and myths and the collective unconscious and 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 in the sense that as as trends or being brought in as an advisor Brexit and Trump uh, were great because actually people go we can't I, I, we can't predict anything anymore hmm. You know, and I've never been the the type of futurist that's really been about predictability. It's always been about being about potentiality for me. Um, but really, I probably would find the hardest struggle at that board level, uh, if I can make a generalization of clients and the issues. It's it's what's the difference between fate and destiny? Mm. You know, how much control do we actually kind of have? In this, And I always can say, uh, whether it's a company I'm working for, an individual, I can read their future really based on their tolerance threshold to the unknown. Because it's only in that unknown can something new be birthed. But most people don't have that tolerance threshold at all. Uh, most of us can't probably even do five minutes. Right. And then we go back to habitual repetitive thinking. There is no such thing as a future if it's just a repeat of today. Mm. And many, many people and many, many companies live in Groundhog Day. Yeah. So an organization would get you in from a leadership side mm. of trying to change their culture, to evolve their culture, or yeah. is that the desire? And Often it's just the exposure of a, a different way of thinking, of being, of seeing. Um, why I love archetypes so much is because they are patterns of power. And um, I really love the work of Carolyn Mace and a lot of her work around the survival archetypes. Because what I was kind of seeing is like, if you've got a board and you've got, you know, um, a bully, um, a, a child, um, a caregiver, a people pleaser, a narcissist, nothing new is being born. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And we, um, I think it's Martin Reed we spoke to um, in, our, in our first podcast talked about the only way businesses can transform is almost to to tear it back to its bones and start mm. again because it, it, without doing that, yeah. you can't truly transform. Mm. Is that similar in, in your situation? Like going, yeah. if, you, if you're just changing bits where you just might change the C-suite or you might, mm. if you're dealing with government, you might um, change a premier or a, a minister's viewpoint, but unless you can change the fundamental, fundamental cultural construct you're really not you're not really going to have permanent mm. adjustment to the way that organization thinks and what's come up again and again is the the importance of a strong culture moving forward so 
how, how do you have those kind of conversations mm. where you, if you're going in discussing the topic and then you leave and it's a bit like sand, you kind of mm. dig a hole and you leave and, the, and they go, yeah, it's great, but then the sand just fills the hole yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with that scenario when it's, it's so such a transformation is likely required? Yeah, and again, a lot of it is like, uh, what are what are the conditions in which you're kind of being brought in? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's yeah, of course, you see so many people that say, uh, you know, inverted commas change makers, and you can say whatever you want on the lecture circuit because you don't actually have to turn up every day and do the job. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of it is really being aware of my responsibility. Uh, when I'm brought in, whether this is a long project or mm. it is just, okay, it's that inspiration here. Mm. But back to the earlier point about, like you said, um, in transformation, look, destruction is the right hand of creation. And we in our society have not made friends with the destroyer archetype. We don't know how to be with it, you know. Um, and and again, creation and destruction are in, inextricably kind of linked together. And again, as is life and death. You know, um, it's not that one is better or worse than or anything like that. That to me, they're just on a continuum. And it's how do we actually, um, h- how do you almost in a say, and a, a death is also to parts of the psyche that no longer can come with. You know, that's an essential kind of part of transformation mm-hmm. too. Not just, you know, as a, like you said, the the physical removal of certain people because energetically, the the there's still an, an an imprint or a constellation of energy that that still exists if that person is there or not. Hmm. If you were pulled into an organisation and the CEO or the C-suite had a desire to transform their business, would you work with them on an ongoing basis? Yes. 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 So what- and uh, I'm a really big fan of. Um, I'm studying at the moment to become a, um, or two things to be um, do certified. Um, archetypal readings through the Carolyn Mace model, but also as a constellation facilitator, systemic constellations. So for me, it's actually you have to work with the system, not the individual. Mm. Um, if you just kind of think of um, the system being a vacuum cleaner and the, the individual a speck of dust, the speck of dust can't actually, it, 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 the force of the vacuum cleaner is so great. So you always have to be working with the system. And that's a really big part yeah. of my work. So is that looking at the system go, how can we um, pull the system back or change the system? Well, I understand to... it's, the, it's the system is, is stronger than the individual. Right, okay. You know? yeah. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of leadership work is just one, done one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah, not so the is, is that the system in ensuring that it's from the top to the bottom and the bottom back well, up again? Well, in systemic constellation work, the, there is no such thing as a problem because it's actually solving something the system needs. Otherwise, it wouldn't actually be yeah, there. Yeah. But it's having all involved in the organisation mm. involved in endorsing that. Yeah. But it's, again, um, I just finished a project for a, a bank in, in Canada. Um Often, you know, strategy people write these amazing documents, but they don't have to be around for the delivering of the experience. And I would say that, you know, most um, most people don't really understand what it actually takes to to be the embodiment of what they say they are because they're so incongruent. You know, they think one thing, feel another, say and act another, and then post something completely different on Facebook. Mm. You know, this, and so what it actually takes to be you know, a congruent human being is often actually too much for what a business is actually um, asking of them and it's, it usually cannot be delivered. Mm. What do you see the, as the future of brands? 
Mm. Or positive brands, more so. Yes, I think that, you know, everything in life obviously has its place. And I, I think for me, it's always those that, um, what's their archetypal purpose? What, what are they standing for? Um, and obviously, you know, to be able to be seen as, you know, for the collective um, and, and, and for the individual just as much as for the planet and the community and the kind of the society. I don't see it now as, you know, brands that only just benefit shareholders. I, I don't really see that as the future. Mm. And do you have business brands you see that are doing that well? The brands you work like a brand. I always get can, caught with this question because then people go yeah. think that that's the only model. No, no, no. I but they're brands yeah. that you look. Let, mm. Let's say let's look at sort of some of the uh, the the fast growth juggernauts we talked about. Mm. Not having a growth mindset has been the obsession. But if you looked at an Airbnb or a, mm. an Uber, are they doing it well, mm. or is that the opposite of what we should be seeking? Well, I wouldn't want to kind of cast judgment on exactly what anyone's <laughs> kind of kind of doing. Um, but it's recognizing who who has the power and what are these new forms of power that are kind of beginning to emerge. Is all the power only with the tech giants, or was it is it with us? And obviously, the role of privacy and things like that kind of comes us to play. Us as individuals, yeah, that, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I think far more of it is, you know, what are these new ways of co-creating? And I think it's it's well, how do we co-create a new narrative of what it means to be alive today? What's this? What's this new narrative that we can, we can? As I said, yeah, it sounds like a trend word, like co-create. Um, but I always have always said it's like knowledge of one person, wisdom of another, to a new higher collective form. Mm. It can't just come solely from you. Mm. That's sort of really coming back to whether it's a government leader mm. or a corporate or brand leader. They're not the leaders. It's it's the mm. it's the people. By and large, mm. that are ultimately driving the way we do what we do. Mm. Is that right? I always, you know, I guess for me, it's someone. I what I teach is, you know, an archetypal language. You know, it's so important to know thyself, like the Oracle of Delphi. But it's not knowing your preferences. Like, oh, I'd rather a diet cake than a cake or a soy latte versus a rice milk. It, it's it's knowing you know, what your intrinsic motivations actually are, what's unconscious within you. Because I'm actually far more, because I do a lot of one-on-one, um, you know, work as as well as systems work in the sense of archetypally. Um, I'm far more interested in how someone destroys their talent than actually helping them see their talent. You know, it's you've got to know how you undo yourself, you know, um, and all the ways that you sabotage yourself. And I just kind of find that that's kind of the work that gets really interesting at an individual level, at a level, at that level, still knowing that the individual is part of a system, um, but actually being able to kind of go, oh, you know exactly this is how I sabotage myself. Okay. And this is really how I sell and compromise with my creativity. And Mm. this is when I'm in my child. This is how it speaks to me. And when I feel victimized, this is how I do that. That's a leader to me. That does has nothing to do with job title whatsoever. But anyone that knows themselves at that level is to me, someone that embodies what it means to be a leader. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So for example, building up the creative confidence in mm. their team or having their team so they feel psychologically safe. Yeah, that's those a really things, big yeah. part of it, you know, being able to have those safe containers, yeah, yeah. to be able to create that, yeah. Yeah, mm. okay, okay. What? How well does government 
do all of this? Or what is the government's role in transformation of our thinking, yeah. how we involve myths or the seasons or... Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, in all things, like, you know, we're so scared often to be humiliated. Um, and that I see a lot in governments is like they don't want to be humiliated or to be seen to make a mis- make a mistake. Um and that doesn't help actually anybody um, because it's almost like how do you trust your vision, your ideas without having to have it always reflected back to you in, in voter numbers or consensus. Mm. Um, and I don't often kind of see that in, in government. I don't see those rebels mm. and we need the rebels. You know, we need yeah. the rebels and we need the outsiders and often they're not the um, archetypal patterns that, that exist and work within government. What, what do you see as a role of government? Mm, definitely I kind of I feel it's it's so much around what does it what can actually help us you know almost be human again what is this new human what's the new narrative for humanity I think it's really being able to kind of lead that and Mm. it's not just about legislation and, and and taxes and things like that but you know we exist on this beautiful planet earth which is part of a galaxy you know, and and I think that's the role, which is what does it mean to be a, a citizen of the human race? Mm. And we've often lost that word citizenship, you know, as well mm. as, you know, um, as well as we've lost, you know, the, the you know, if the word fortitude. How does someone endure something? You know, not always like emotional bypassing or wishful thinking or quick fixes. It's that's, the, I think, the, the, the role of me for me of government. Mm. Yeah. And governments, or some governments, are talking about um, citizen-led uh, and or citizen juries or, or mm. models like that. Do you what? what do you, what's your observation on some of the ways in which governments are mm. saying they're citizen-led? Do you feel like they are being citizen-led? Not that any I want, and not that any I know personally. Yeah, <laughs> no, okay. not in my experience of no, it. No, no, no. Okay, that's, yeah, it's no, interesting, isn't it? I guess it's sort of interesting on it, whether it's a government side or, or otherwise. When we get down to sort of vulnerable people in society, whether they're just like, mm. they're just trying to survive. Yeah. How does it sort of the, the myths and and seasons and mm. it's sort of the same when it gets down to those vulnerable people in society. Mm-hmm. Like from a, is that is that a government's role of ensuring that that all people vulnerable and otherwise are the human side mm. is recognised? Oh. <laughs> It's like the human fur. At first, it's that um, how do we actually really truly have empathy and compassion um, and to be able to see ourselves in the other? Mm-hmm. Um, how, do we, how do we live in, yeah, as I said, that, that we're all brothers and sisters of humankind? Mm. Um, and it is almost often only through tragedy um, that that happens. Um, to just say, therefore, the grace of God, go I. It could happen to actually anyone. Mm-hmm. Most people, when something happens to them, they don't think it should have happened to them. Mm-hmm. This entitlement. Well, well, who did you think it should happen to? Them over there, not me. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And I think that's then when there's that, um, you know, that, that fragileness, the fragility of life kind of comes back to you mm-hmm. almost in a sense that, that, you know, that the way that the light casts a shadow, it'll never come that way actually again. That you start living with a reverence and with a sacredness. um, And that I think to me is incredibly linked to stillness. And I think the reason that like we stay so busy is so our emotions don't catch up to us. Mm. 
You know, and I think that's, you know, how do we have spaces like in life where we can actually reflect? Yeah, that's interesting. I'd come back to a point, the point you made earlier about not being obsessed by having a growth mindset. Does having a growth, growth mindset make us very selfish and very almost tunnel vision that there are other people out there? So mm. if we kind of take a calm breath and drop that back we're actually thinking about the broader society as a whole yeah, yeah. and maybe become more empathetic is that, is yeah that absolutely well most people um i often kind of say most people don't even have a galactic perspective mm-hmm. um or don't even have a planetary kind of perspective um and i think the the people that i know that i work with that i, I really admire have a, a view of they look at life as i said as we are part of a galaxy um, from this wider kind of wider almost solar system kind of thinking um, and in the microcosm is the macrocosm as above so below mm-hmm, um, mm. and it's that you know I said that quote you know the sign of intelligence is being able to you know have two opposing views in the mind at the same time and not go insane mm-hmm. like how do you hold the tension of that equilibrium mm-hmm. uh, is, it, is it also about accepting of individuals accepting their insignificance Meaning that we're both significant and insignificant at exactly the same time. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And and where we fit within that broader, mm. that broader context. And I guess that's from a from an individual side, but also from a business side of accepting mm. that we are significant, but we're also yes. insignificant. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And on a, with once seven point four billion people across the world, we're only but a speck. Yes. Really. Yes. And that but I everything guess that a, we do matters as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you go to small cities and towns. Mm. Do you find that they there's a difference between, say, a small yeah. city and town and how a small city and town operates and thinks versus a Sydney, Melbourne, London? Except? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that every um, place has its own energy. Mm. I mean, there's ley lines that run around the earth that have an impact on that. It, but if you go, say, to somewhere like, um, you know, New York, it's based on a grid. If you go to Paris, it's radial. Um, you know, if you go to London, it's more village-like. All the ways of the, that the city is kind of shaped is having an, an, an influence. But I also kind of feel when I go to smaller towns, of course, like everybody says, it's the pace. But it's almost like not just like the slower kind of pace, but it's actually remembering to live. It's like what... Um, it's almost like you have the chance to kind of take a breath. And I think that is just so nourishing for most people at the moment when they're obviously caught up in their um, virtual worlds often and um, don't actually see the eyeballs of the person in front of them. Hmm. So, okay, that's, that's great. I, I think um, we're sort of pretty well there. Is there any sort of what your, mm. your books? You've talked about your, your first book. Yeah. Can, can oh, Grace sort of, in the Wind. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah. your second book is out or coming out soon or coming out. So, well, uh, finishing still kind of the first draft, but yeah, it's coming, it's coming out. And, and this is, it's, it's really about, um, the role of myths in society today and to be able to, uh, the, the archetypal necessity, um, for, descending into what I'll say the underworld or, or the unconscious that there's so many realms that we can connect with to innovate and you know 
I love working for companies that there's the freedom that people can come in and talk about a dream that they had and see if it actually has any significance to the project that they're mm. working on. Um, those that have um, do a brief meditation, um, those that contribute and work, you know, with charities. Um, that that actually that there's um, we can almost in a sense, you know, a news constellation work where you're going to the field. I love working with the field, that it, that, 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 that the knowledge is there and it's how do we tap into it. And then I also really love working with companies that are know the importance of being on land, on country, and to be able to bring nature into the picture too. Um, you know, there's a real completely different vibe when you do an away day in a corporate office to, again, one um, where you're actually seeing the sun go down and sun kind of come up. Mm-hmm. Something else kind of happens to you. There's that magic that kind of gets reawakened um, when we're working with nature as our partner mm-hmm. in the creative process. And pressing pause and leaving. and is that yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that nature... Um, is not just like a resource for us to strip at all. Um, but nature is the one that is guiding us on the future by teaching us with what, what is. And that's really what the role of the seasons are, is how do we tune in to what the season is requiring from us in our businesses and also our own personal lives. Yeah, okay. And any other suggestions in terms of where to find you or mm. other links or... Yeah, so my website's my name, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-D-R-Y-Z-A. And if you just search for Kristen Adresia on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Christina. You. Have a nice rest of the day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Today for the bit at the end, I'm joined by Lucinda and Alice. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Lucinda. How Thank old is Alice? Alice is seven months. Seven months old. And she's been seven very well behaved. I, yeah, I, I thought about putting her on my lap, but I don't need her. Yeah, don't need to be unsettled with a scary man. You never know. Um, there we go. Yeah, you, you never quite know. <laughs> you never. Um, I'm going to just jump straight to the the, the chase. So, mm-hmm. on your LinkedIn profile, you've got a role there that says you're what are you the the dean of awesome at awesome foundation. Yes. What does that mean? It's a title that I um, drop at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so everybody knows what awesome is. And yeah. It's a, to be the dean of awesome is quite yeah. a that's it. Quite a title and quite a uh, quite an interesting way to lead. Um, uh, if people ask me what I do, but so basically, the Awesome Foundation is a worldwide foundation, which is a complete tongue-in-cheek situation. Yeah. <laughs> Alice loves it. Um, it's tongue-in-cheek because it's not really a foundation. Yeah. Uh, How long has the foundation been going? The foundation, I think, it's a good question. It started in America maybe five years ago. Okay. Yep. I have to fact check that. Um, and it's sort of just grown from there. But the basic uh, kind of idea of it is that, okay, how can we help people have more money to do more awesome things? And one of the biggest things that's stopping people from being able to get money and grants is red tape. So the Basically, the whole char- charity is set up that it's no strings attached. And with tongue-in-cheek, because it's not really a foundation, it's 10 trustees. And the trustees aren't really trustees. We're not really a board. And I'm not really a dean. Uh, but it functions yeah, yeah, very similar. Yeah. Um, so we all kind of meet on a mutual basis. And we say, okay, let's put individually, let's all put $100 in. Give $1,000 away to somebody doing something awesome. Yeah. And what that means is we could give money to... 
we gave uh, $1,000 worth of sunflower seeds to somebody to plant sunflowers in their own community backyard. So people like that would never get grants, um, and that's what it sort of means. Well, ideas like that would never get grants um, from people like that. A specific person wouldn't go out and um, apply for money either. So that's good. mm. You went to a conference or an event? last year for awesome is that right yes yeah. i did i got to go to washington yeah. um every single year they have an awe summit which is basically all of the trustees all get together it's usually based in america because most of the f- chapters are in america um and i got to go there and meet all the other deans heaps of other chapter trustees as well we went everywhere we went to um um Sorry, got distracted. So everybody everybody that was there was from the UK, Berlin. Um, we had some people from Rio. We had people from Adelaide. Uh, all come together. So, yeah. so do you, have you, is, I'm assuming, is there thousands of chapters or is it? There are. Yeah, there are many are. chapters. Uh, I think the only place that doesn't have a chapter is New Zealand. At that level, did, did, did mm-hmm. they talk about sort of some of the people who get funds or some of the success out of awesome yeah, at a broader level? It was, was one of the most interesting things because they, we all had similar types of um, struggles in getting chapters to be sustainable. We all had the same um, moral discussions that have to happen because what is awesome is awesome. Uh, we have a little joke that we say, you know, is it to the orphans or the flamethrowers? And it's that um, sort of thing where you say, oh, who deserves the money every single month? It's like comparing apples with pears, which is really hard. And we all talk, we all had that struggle. We all talked about that, which was really cool. Mm. In terms of what that chapter's about. Yeah, so no matter around and... the world, um, and there was language barriers as well, we all struggle with the fact that we're not really a board. Yeah. Um, we're not really trustees. Um, and some, some uh, in, in Brazil especially, there was issues with they couldn't really understand what the money was, so it's renamed as a gift. Yeah, okay. Um, and so the... The struggles that every chapter kind of has to overcome were all very similar, no matter where we were. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, is it, 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 it is its premise when it first started about getting, um, yeah, get, getting a funds just to get something started at a really simple level, no strings attached. Yeah, yeah. basically, it's all that kind of grassroots stuff that we end up funding because a thousand dollars is no matter where you sort of live it's enough money that you can do some fairly powerful things Mm. but it's also not you know it's not 50 grand um sort of thing so the ideas that we get sometimes they're really really big ideas and the thousand dollars will help with one small part of that big idea um and then sometimes a thousand dollars is really just all they need to be able to do what they want to do so it it changes every single month and all the different types of projects that we fund it's very different but there's always a consistency with it and it's this theme that I love that I see from awesome. And what I personally get out of it is what I like to call the, you give somebody permission. So you say to that person, Hey, guess what? Your idea that you thought, you know, would never get funded. Um, you thought it was the most craziest idea. 10 other people thought it was really awesome. Yeah. Okay. And as Dean, I get to ring up the winners and have conversations with the winner, um, or the grantee. And every single time it's, always like wow i didn't think <laughs> i didn't think it wasn't ready enough for all those sorts of things so yeah so who are some of the winners in the like last even some of the standout winners over the last year or two i don't know yeah i think whoever you ask will probably have a different answer yeah. um one of the 
one of the projects that I absolutely loved was just a community garden. Um, not necessarily the concept alone was that unique, but what they wanted was a ping pong table. And with that ping pong table that they got, it was only just a what, – what I loved about that project the most was the fact that you could get a ping pong table in a community area and that ping pong table was enough just to create everybody to come together. So they needed some space where we had all the volunteers doing all things but they had, didn't meet and congregate yeah. anywhere. And just with that simple um, ping pong table, they realised, oh, hang on, we've got a table now. And they sent um, us a photo and they had set it up for morning tea. Mm. Which I just loved because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's what it's all about is simple simple money for simple ideas to help either a small group of people that trickles out to helping a larger community um, or it it kind of it, it's that catalyst I suppose yeah. for moving something forward. What's another one? What's a, yeah. Another one. That, I love that one. Uh, another one we had was a dance party platform where uh, an artist built a portable dance party and it was literally just he just needed some wood and gave, gave him some money to build some wood uh, make it make the stage is that your favorite too alice <laughs> um <laughs> yeah to make the stage and it, it just sort of moved around and said you know dance here uh, which was really cool so yeah. yeah there's some ones i'm thinking of i'll probably think of way more after <laughs> what's one what's one more what, what's, what's another one one more so we actually just gave money to an artist yeah. just last month to wood <laughs> which I'm alice helped. Smile, yeah so. alice loved that um which was actually just an artist who wanted a new wood burner but with that wood burner meant that he was hoping that he could actually work on his community garden that he had in his own backyard and give money away to people in the area to yeah. uh, give uh produce away to the area people in the area yeah, yeah okay yeah I, I came involved on in awesome oh end of last year november last year and it was mm. interesting discussing at the last meeting that one and and it's interesting that there will be the, the trustees having their own mind up before the meeting and then you'll start discussing and debating the whys and wherefores of, of that one and then it was it was just a very yeah, it was the the bold the, the the language he'd used in his application was very much about the boldness of I just want to do this and I'm going to yes. give it a crack and yeah and I think the joke was we're going to give him a call he was he talked about his five daughters and how his his missus wouldn't allow him to have the money in the past and <laughs> yeah. maybe if I got some better equipment I might get better at this so that and there was this really I guess these nice discussions that go around about mm. like yeah that. that why not? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and and it is and... that why not, absolutely. I think that's one of the most interesting things that I love because we've been – the foundation in Adelaide, I've been running it now for four years. This is our fourth year. And over that period of time, no matter who joins the group, they all agree that they want to throw money at somebody just mm. to see what will happen. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what background they come from. If they have that common interest, it means that they can all come together and we have really positive mm. discussions. Because... It's obviously even a scary one just to – put an application in even yeah. for something like awesome yeah. yeah one of the biggest things we have is people don't necessarily trust that it's real um mm. they kind of what's the catch so how do they hear about it like, mm. when, how do people know that awesome exists in i world? would love to be able to map that out yeah. uh, to really know um i was really interested on in the winner that we had last month you know he's sort of just a family guy how did he hear about what we're doing um and he just loves scrolling the internet and found it through a government uh, council website yeah, and said that we're giving money away. So people that have newsletters and things, we always encourage them to write um, about what we can actually provide to different community organisations, youth groups, science, 
all around. Um, we have found that's the best way that people have been able to find out about us through other trusted sources because we look a bit fishy, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Um, because people don't necessarily give money away for free very often. Yeah. There's usually a catch. So there's, no string, so there's no strings attached, but do you mm. go back to some of the people who have received some money to mm. see what the result has been? Or, yeah, so yeah. at the end of the year. I write an email to yeah. everybody and say, hey, if you can give us an update on how you've gone, we'd just love to hear from you. Yeah. But I, we don't expect them to write that. So it captures a lot of people in um, different community groups, charity groups, non-for-profits, because we're 100% trust-based trust mm. funding, yeah. which a lot of uh, people in that kind of space have always wanted, I think, to mm. play with and wanted to see if it would work, and it does work. Um, which is really cool. It really reminds people that um, there are opportunities out there and people will put trust in other people. And what I mean by trust-based funding is that we literally, they don't need a charity, um, a bank account, they don't need an ABN, they don't need to do acquittals, they don't need to prove that the money was even given to their idea. It's literally just, we trust you because if you're wanting to do something like this for your community, then why wouldn't they spend it on the thing that they love doing? Yeah, okay. So what sort of people uh, are welcome to put in an application? Oh, everyone. Yeah. We have, uh, with, yeah, young, old. I think the youngest person we've given money to was 14, perhaps even younger, actually. I think he may have been 12. Um, people that I actually would love to get more applications come through, walk through the doors, more people in science, more people wanting to try all the different ideas. In Victoria, they actually gave money to somebody to buy $1,000 worth of poo. Because he wanted to build a poo, poo machine to know how to harness energy from waste. Um, you know, those type of ideas people wouldn't think could actually get funded. Mm. Uh, but they're exactly the things that we would love to fund. So, Okay. So how do people find Awesome or Awesome yep, so, Adelaide? So. Yeah, so the awesome uh, awesomefoundation.com.org, sorry. And then uh, they follow the prompts to their chapter in their area, so... Uh, there's one in Victoria. There's two in Victoria. Uh, one in New South Wales. One in yeah, and then one in South Australia. Okay, mm. cool. Thanks. Another thought. We've got Alice here, uh, mm. and, and and you. You're a new new mum. I, I am. So yes. What's it like Seven months a, new. <laughs> what's it like being a mum? It is fantastic. Um, I can only. <laughs> is it like what you expected? Do you know? Um, my partner and I, Aiden, we had this conversation early on and we said, what are we going to expect? And we said, nothing. Let's just expect that change is going to happen and um, we'll just adapt to whatever that means. And I was, mostly I was afraid of what it meant for me as my day-to-day -day life. I, I was very happy. I really love, I loved my life. I loved uh, my career. I loved all those things. And I didn't know how having a child would impact those things, that was probably the most thing that I was nervous about, I suppose. Yeah, mm. but it's flowed fine. And <laughs> no, yeah, sort of. I it's... think this morning you were saying, oh, it, it, yeah, true thrown baby. out a little bit, true yeah. baby, that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, Jason had to reschedule with me a few times. Um, but you do appreciate flexibility to, like, if anything, the people in your life that are willing to be flexible, the organisations, the clients, the everyone that's willing to be flexible um, are so much more appreciated because uh, you wake up in the day, in the morning, with all of these intentions for your day and every parent knows that that can disappear very, very quickly. 
Um, but for me, I think everybody was going on about how much things are going to change and be brace yourself for the change, all those things. And the change definitely did happen, but not in a way that I understood people explaining it to me because I'm exactly the same person. I still love routine. I still love a clean environment. I still love um, doing what I find personally enjoyable, all those things. And it's just sort of, for me, it's just adapting how how I can prioritise those things and how I can mm. still get those things done, but like a silly thing. Your if, life's not dramatically changed. It's not dramatically yeah, changed. Yeah. It wasn't this huge still thing. You. I'm still yeah. me. You know, yeah. It's more about, okay, how do I make sure that Alice is happy and I'm happy? And sometimes that means an hour shower in the evenings. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's just little things like that. you got to just go with the flow. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't change. I still want to shower every day. Yeah. But when do I shower now? It's not in the morning. I now yeah. shower in the evenings. <laughs> and it's just looking at those little things. Yeah. And probably for the last four or five months, that's, that's the hard part, is knowing where things fit. Yeah, okay. Mm. What were you like as a child? Me. Maybe not this young. It's probably hard to remember back to seven mm. months old, I'm assuming. But. Well, I was very, t- I was quite, sh- I was shy to an extent that I think, um, so I had an accident when I was three, which sent me blind in my left eye, which impacted me greatly in my, um, I guess my acceptance of my, of myself with certain things. Um, but as I grew up, I learned to appreciate the people that never even noticed that took me for who I was. And I think that did shape me in how I look at people now and how mm. I look at their scenario. Um, in, in terms of empathy or? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And the, the awesome foundation is one of those things that fits me perfectly because I know what it feels like to know that you've got a good idea but no one's backing you. Yeah, okay. And awesome has the power to back people that mightn't be having anyone backing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and do you have, well, I'm assuming you have some hopes for, for Alice, but mm. hopes or lessons you hope to teach or ways in which you yeah. want to guide her? What, what, what's your thinking there? Yeah, heaps. Um, heaps. Too much for a quick <laughs> <laughs> snapshot. Oh, I guess it's um, knowing that there's more than um, middle-class white Australians yeah. in, in the world and learning that as quickly as possible. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. I can. Um, I guess uh, my partner, he grew up, he was, he came, his parents were born in England and he grew up in an immigration kind of environment um, down in the northern Adelaide. And his life experience from me growing up in Strathalbyn in a small country town was completely different. And I appreciate how quickly he was able to adapt that people are different. Two seconds. Alice just wanted to join in. Are you right now? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, from from my experience growing up, it probably wasn't until my early 20s that I really had a a realisation that there are other people out there (laughs) other than people like me, and that was too late. Yeah. Do you Um, think the world, like, yeah, so there's that that connection with the world beyond yourself and your local... Is is that thinking broader about that? Yeah, it's not... Uh, about other people, different people. Yeah, there's more than three meats and veg on a plate. Yeah. There's cultural experiences that are to be had that can form who she wants to be as a person as early as possible. Yeah. And I think doing that early on as a young woman, she can build her confidence up to be 100% authentically her and she's got nothing to prove. And I do, I do think 
I, I have a feeling that if I, if I had more cultural experiences growing up, if I knew that there were other people out there that had been through completely different um, upbringings and experiences than what I had, then maybe my outlook on the world could have been different. Yeah. The lens that I saw myself in the world, I guess, could have been just a little bit different. Yeah, excellent. Mm. So an exciting future, is that? Yes, yeah. I think so. I think it'd be, it's interesting. Um, I saw a campaign not too long ago from the Eco Store. There's just this natural project, a natural product. And they did this project saying, oh, and they had these kids and they asked the kids, um, can you paint your future? And they paint, they got, had artists paint whatever the kids were describing. And it was vibrant and um, flying cars and, you know, all those wonderful things. And then they had the parents on the other side of those kids paint the future. And it was dark and there was global warming and floods and all of those. And I don't know why, but it's just really stuck in my mind because I don't want to project what, I don't want to project what I think her future might look like onto her. Her future and her world may be maybe bright and mm. wonderful and it may not have all of this global issues that we're all terrified is going to happen. It could all change. And so I want to set her up for a world where she can feel, can feel that the world's her oyster and it's not broken yeah. just because it's different to what the past was. Um, it's even, it, it's just, it's her world and she can make it however she wants to. <laughs> That's great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much, Lucinda, and thank you, Alice. Bye-bye, Alice. <laughs> Alice has been very well-behaved. She's been smiling with a couple of fingers in her mouth during this show, and she's waving goodbye to the microphone. microphone. So, <laughs> so thank you very much. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Hey, Jason here. Just to say goodbye until next time, please do not forget to subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails, topics from market research to human-centred design, innovation, entrepreneurialism, a whole lot of different topics by articles by me, Square Holes team, special guests from Justin Wilden to Steve Sammartino, Lisa Domenico, Elaine Steed, uh, been quite popular, very committed every week for the last 18 months or so. Please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and to join the email list. You can also follow me via Jason Dunstone on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Aroosh.